gentlemen, welcome back to yet another episode of Brain Buzz. We're your hosts, I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we're joined by a very special guest, friend of us, friend of the show, uh, Zach. Zach, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, great to be here. <laughs> we're really excited to have you on. Uh, Zach, why don't you tell us, uh, give us your name, lab, what you're doing. Sure, yeah. So, Zach Whitcower. Um, uh, I study nonverbal behavior. I'm working with Jessica Tracy at the University of British Columbia uh, in the Emotion Self Lab. Um, so most of my research is centered around how people communicate emotion, how they communicate personality information, uh, what kinds of behaviors people use to interpret emotion and personality information, whether or not we do this accurately, uh, whether or not the impressions we form about others are accurate, and things kind of in that general sphere. Awesome. So when I'm sitting here and, and Drake's rambling on about something and I'm just throwing him daggers, that's how he picks that up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, perfect. Good, good, good. That doesn't happen. <laughs> no, no, I always entertain you. I let you go on your, your little tangents and I bring us back. <laughs> okay. Great. I'm really excited. Uh, thanks, Zach, for letting us know who you are. Uh, Drake, take, take us over. away. Yeah. So, Zach, that's a lot of stuff that you just mentioned that we're going to be yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah. Should have narrowed it there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nah, don't. Yeah. It's good. The it's beauty of it is I, I think we're going to touch on all those things, and, and you're do, you're going to do an eloquent job of, do, of addressing those. So let's start off real simple. What are we going to be talking about this episode that you want to highlight? I know you've got a lot of work going on right now. So what are the first things that we need to talk about when it comes to nonverbal communication that people should know about? Sure, yeah. So one of the projects that I'm pretty excited about right now, we actually have a series of several studies um, looking at how people influence the behaviors of others and what kinds of nonverbal behaviors people use. Um, so a lot of the questions that I'm interested in are around what kinds of specific behaviors are used, how they influence people, um, the situations that these emerge, whether it's like the recent presidential debates, um, and kind of how we learn to do these behaviors in the first place. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how do we <laughs> uh, how do we learn these things? I, and I, I know we're going to talk a lot more about how, like the origins of this and, and, and such, but what kind of behaviors are, are we going to be talking about today that these nonverbal behaviors, I, you, you talk about politics. I think people, a lot of people are thinking, okay, we're, we're of course we're going to be talking about dominance. Uh, spoiler alert. I already know we're talking about dominance, so. <laughs> but uh, other things like, uh, like things whenever I think about politics and, and nonverbal cues is things like, uh, can I tell whether or not this person is going to be a good leader just by looking at them? not even paying attention to what they're saying. And I feel like a lot of people do have that inclination that they can just judge people non-verbally and say, oh, they don't have they don't have sh the shoulders to handle the pressure or things like that. And you always hear those things. Sure. I mean, people use, like, whether whether we know we're doing it or not, people use non-verbal behavior to not only drive their perceptions, but also it has direct implications for voting behavior. So going back to even the Nixon-Kennedy debates, right? So this was a actually a very unique time where um, debates were held not only on television, but it was the start of television, so they were also held on the radio. And there's this really interesting effect they found where when they looked at people who just saw the debates on the radio, they thought for sure Nixon won. Uh, when they looked at the people who saw it on television, well, they thought for sure Kennedy won, right? Mm -hmm. So the difference here is, is not having to do with what they're saying. Everyone's hearing the same thing, but the way that the candidates present themselves have clear implications for how competent we think they are and eventual voting behaviors, for uh, sure. Absolutely. That, and that, I think that's really cool. And, and for me, so... I have no experience in, in the dominant dominance literature or anything like that. I come from a more relationship based and I have a lot of interest in sex research as well. So, and, I, and this is a very big part of, of that research as well is this nonverbal communication. This nonverbal flirtation is, is a big thing that a, a lot of people really like to read into. Yeah, lust versus love too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think like without that nonverbal information, you're losing a lot. Right. And I think this is something that also, uh, in, in my research, I'm thinking about a lot, too, with support research. Uh, and this is just kind of reiterating that nonverbal communication is really, really important. Um, 
I'm super interested right now in how you can support through texting uh, and and the ability to, to support a partner without that nonverbal feedback as well as the verbal feedback at the same time, right? So sure. you lose that ability to kind of translate your emotions through your, your facial expressions and your body, your body posture and things like that. Absolutely. And there's this actually really what I'll call unique emerging field um, <laughs> because obviously you can't use nonverbal behavior when you're communicating, but at the same time you can use emojis. Yes, right, so yes. you you have the capability to communicate facial expressions to some capacity, <laughs> and I know, for example, Dr. Keltner at uh, UC Berkeley, he he's actually done a lot of work um, helping create a lot of the emojis to try and make them as accurate as possible. Um, so on the one hand, you definitely lose a very 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 important component of communication, but the way that I see it, the world's trying to bring it back in, even in terms of texting yeah. as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can definitely see that. For a little uh, a little refresher on some of our emoji stuff, head back to episode 16 with Dr. Jocelyn Wentland, where yeah. we talked about uh, the most sexual emojis. <laughs> yeah. yeah so Get we, those we, eggplants we did talk, <laughs> I was about to say. Yeah, yeah. Yes. We did talk about the most common uh, emojis used in sexting with, with her research. Interesting. Yeah, so, yeah. She, so Jocelyn Wentland's... Uh, at the University of uh, British Columbia, Okanagan. Yep. Uh, and she does some really cool work on that. So I, I'm glad that you yeah. brought it up because it, it's true. It, it does dictate how people respond to and uh, basically perceive others, even through texting. So now we're going to talk, we're avoiding all the technology here because this is yeah. what we're talking about today. But it's important it. to note that there are, there, there are definitely variations in the type of communication that are going on because sure. you're missing that nonverbal communication. Um, so... We, I already mentioned we're talking about dominance. What other th what other types of nonverbal communication are you focused in on your work, and how are we address how do you address those? Sure. So for a long time, people were just generally interested in how you influence the behavior of others, and it was only I shouldn't say recently. It's now been a few years, but there are actually two ways to influence people's behavior. So on the one hand, you can communicate knowledge and expertise and competence, uh, make people kind of defer to you because they think you have valid points and they want to defer to you. So right. we'll call this prestige. Yeah. Uh, then there's also you can use aggression and intimidation, sometimes coercion to elicit fear. So we'll call this dominance. So for example, if some bouncer is trying to get you kicked out of a bar and they want to give you this look that's like, get out of here or I'm going to hurt you. Mm. Um, that's the situation we'd call dominance. <laughs> not um, prestige. Eh? I, 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 wouldn't go, I wouldn't go calling that prestige. <laughs> yeah, and fair. then at the same time, right when a professor steps up at the front of the classroom and they're trying to appear competent, so you listen to them or if you're in a group interaction and you're having a debate people often turn to the person who they perceive to be the most competent in the group so mm -hmm. we'll call this prestige right those are two interesting types of nonverbal communication that i from someone that doesn't know the research seems like those would be both prevalent in different types of leaders sure so um you definitely see that there are different leaders who utilize these strategies in different ways um, but that said, for example, it's possible a prestigious person might be dominant in a specific situation or a dominant person might be prestigious in a specific situation. It's definitely uh, situational specific. So mm -hmm. while people do have these tendencies, as you see with personality traits, right? So people might have a tendency to engage in one over the other. It's not to say that a person only does one or only does the other. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can definitely see where, uh, depending on the context, you might have someone that's very prestigious and tends to uh, omit prestige and it might have to be dominant in that situation. They might be effective in it or they may not be. For sure. And, you know, there's even something to be said about the kinds of people who know which situations it's appropriate in. Right? Absolutely. So an ability to kind of switch between strategies, there isn't too much work on this, but there's some research um, that's starting to come out and people who can switch between these strategies might have a specific advantage for sure. So how do you 
differentiate between a dominant nonverbal communication and a prestige. I, I would love to have a prestigious nonverbal communication on a daily basis <laughs> or dominant for that. Sake. I might be screwing up both of these on a daily basis. So how do I go into my next uh, health area meeting, health psychology area meeting and assert my dominance or prestige uh, nonverbally? Because I have nothing to say. <laughs> <I'm sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> How do I look the part? <laughs> yeah, so uh, a few things I have to say about that, Drake, that I won't get into. Um, but so we, we recently have this uh, set of studies now where we're trying to analyze the behaviors that people use um, to form perceptions of dominance and prestige and the behaviors that are actually used by dominant and prestigious individuals. Um, and we see that actually these behaviors do drive group decision making in certain situations. Um, so we're seeing a permutation of behaviors for prestige, such as, uh, like, for example, an upwards head tilt. We see smiling, uh, and we see expansive posture has to do with it, but not grandiose space-taking, like arms out away from the body, just more subtle cues, like chest expanded, torso out, probably sitting up tall, things of that nature. Right. Um, so we see that these behaviors are related to prestige and not dominance. Um, in fact, in some of these cases, doing these prestige behaviors can decrease perceptions of dominance, so they're very distinct from each other. Um, and then on the other side, when it comes to dominance, we see... Um, for example, um, a downwards head tilt with eye gaze directed. I actually have a, a whole other thing talking about how this behavior can change the appearance of the face that we're probably not going to want to get into here. Um, so yeah, we see a downwards head tilt with eye gaze directed. We see a lack of smile and we actually see also expansiveness, but in this case, it's these more grandiose space taking. So arms away from the body with the body occupying much space. Okay. So we see that, um, these two sets of behaviors are linked distinctly to both dominance and prestige and, um, we see that, for example, individuals in a group setting who display these prestige behaviors are actually rated based on group consensus as the most uh, influential members of their group. Mm. Um, so it does have implications for even driving group decision making. Interesting. So Drake, just walk into that meeting, head held, <laughs> head, head held high, eye contact. That was my first mistake. My head's always down, <laughs> <laughs> trying to avoid don't eye look contact. At me, don't look at me, don't look at me. I, I can learn a lot from this episode. <laughs> <for sure. laughs> uh, the, the one thing that I caught the, the difference between them that I was kind of interested in was uh, prestige. You said there's posture, like up, upright postures tends to present more as prestige than dominance. Is dominance more of like a bigger, wider like stance more or less? Does that make sense? Yeah, no. So it makes sense. So I'll talk in a completely exploratory way to yeah, be clear. Whatever sure. I'm about yeah. to say is completely speculative. So um, in one of the most what I think is the most interesting study of this paper that um, we're hoping to get uh, published sometime soon. So I guess there are technically three ways you can expand your body, right? You can do it along this sort of x-axis to be wider. You can yeah. do it along this y-axis to be taller. And then you can do it along this z-axis. So it's like chest expanded or chest narrowed, right? So okay. with the forward back. Yeah. Um, and in a very speculative way, uh, we, we, we do see, I yeah. love, you know, got to yeah. be super clear about the speculation. Um, so we see behaviors along this x-axis are more related to dominance than prestige. We see behaviors along this z-axis are more related to prestige than dominance. Uh, and then this y-axis at this point isn't giving us much of anything. Um, so... So going up tall doesn't really do much either way. We so when I say going up tall, it's really like raising the arms that okay. I can talk about on this right. uh, on this y axis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we, we don't see any evidence, for example, that like people who raise their arms more are perceived as more dominant or prestigious or less dominant or prestigious. It's okay. just really um, not an impactful behavior. Okay, it's um, also it. kind of an unnatural axis to be working on, mm -hmm. right? Like I don't know, like I've never 
walked anywhere and been like, ah, with yeah. my arms like straight up. <laughs> Absolutely, to, yeah. But, so know. when we're coding these behaviors, we're not only yeah. looking at like people putting their arms all the way up above their heads. We're also looking anything basically where the wrists go above the elbows. Right. We're considering okay. arms up. Okay. So like hand on the shoulder kind of thing. That would definitely be an example of people yeah. putting their arms up. Yeah, 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 for sure. Or yeah, the classic lean back, like put your head on your hands. On yeah. Your so head kind yeah, of if you that's like the perfect Y, right? Like so that's not only arms up, but that's also arms out. So yeah. we see that the elbows, for example, right. separate from the torso. So we'd start considering that uh, an arms out in addition to arms up sort okay. of behavior. Yeah, I mean it's with nonverbal communication, it's such an interesting uh, defining these these movements is really interesting to me. Uh, I. I, I think I would land on the L axis, like the lowercase L. I'm just straight. <laughs> Hands in my pockets all at all times. <laughs> I don't know if there is an access like access there is like now. that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you just made it. <laughs> yeah. So no L access, but that uh the Z I said Z. You're you're oh, yeah, sorry. there's a lot of confusion gonna be on this episode because uh -oh. Zach is clearly American. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, Zed's Canadian, right? Yes. Z, yes. You've been saying Z. Okay, yeah. makes sense. All right, just so we put our foot in the ground and <laughs> yeah. we're aware of where we are. Yeah. <laughs> so, I guess we should define the term Z as being Z. Yeah. 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 They're synonymous. Here. I thought I would do a good job defining everything. Yeah. So so there's these three axes that you're looking at, and they all vary on basically what they're listening but this isn't exact this is more speculative this, right? is, this, very this speculative. is very speculative this is like me asking what they kind of look like and how uh, so we kind of got on a tangent that's great it's good to know have an informed speculation because uh, <laughs> yeah. i mean everybody can speculate sure. <laughs> but other people like there's not other people that are doing the research that you guys are doing and sure. when we have guests on that's why we like to have these conversations they're informed by <laughs> by research in some way totally. exactly if not completely informed by it right so yeah. uh, me talking about an l-axis that's uninformed <laughs> don't listen to me i'm not the guest here <laughs> You're the expert on the L-axis. You're the only one I know that talks yeah. about. Uh, it's seminal research going on yeah. right now. Previously undiscovered and undefined L-axis. <laughs> so so uh, let's talk a little bit more about how these are defined uh, amongst people, like how people perceive these things. Because um, for me, I don't know how I would perceive it consciously. But I, I imagine, as you've been kind of alluding to, it's probably a lot of subconscious thinking that's going on or, or this posturing is just impacting people below their conscious thinking right sure yeah so i think when we're forming perception or our impressions of other people i don't think we're saying to ourselves okay this person has their head tilted up 15 degrees right we see like slight activation of their zygomatic major muscle like we're not doing that we're not paying are you explicit. doing that I, I spend a bit too much time doing that if you ask me and if you ask my friends they'll tell you the same thing i spend way too much time doing that uh, okay but, sorry yeah. you know when we're forming these impressions we're not paying this sort of explicit like very hyper focused attention to it we're just kind of using these behaviors in an implicit way to form our perceptions in a lot of these cases mm -hmm. um the study kind of was springboarded off this idea that past research looking at how people influence the behavior of others using nonverbal behavior um it's mostly focused broadly on behaviors that influence others and it hasn't really focused on these two distinct pathways that they do this by um so one reason that this is a huge problem right when we look at something as simple as smiling we see in many cases smiling can uh influence others successfully but in a lot of cases it actually hinders people's ability to influence others and it's largely because in prestige hierarchies it's effective in dominance hierarchies it's ineffective uh, at least this is what i think is going on and we're starting to see evidence for this but um what we wanted to do to start testing these distinct permutations of behaviors um so it really just started off, we had some hypotheses about what they would be. So we expected, for example, smiling would increase prestige, a lack of smile would increase perceptions of dominance. Um, we had some stuff on head position. We also had some ideas about expansiveness. So first we wanted to manipulate all these behaviors and show participants all kinds of permutations. 
um, and just sort of see what starts to happen. So uh, the first time we did this, we immediately see that smiling does increase perceptions of prestige. It decreases perceptions of dominance. We see that expansiveness in general, so without even getting into specific kinds of expansiveness, um, expansiveness in general helps uh, increase perceptions of both prestige and dominance. Um, and then we see an upwards head tilt increases perceptions of prestige, whereas a downwards head tilt increases perceptions of dominance. So um, right off the bat, we found things that were right in line with our hypotheses. Super exciting. Yeah. So obviously, 2018, we need to replicate everything. Mm-hmm. So we create these nonverbal displays. Um, we show people you know, neutral displays, what we think is the prestige display, what we think is the dominance display. Uh, and then we also included like a smiling display just to make sure perceptions of prestige isn't just about a smile. So mm-hmm. expansiveness and upwards head tilt also um, communicates prestige. And so, these, sorry, these sure. these displays are uh, pictures on like a computer screen. So at, or... at this yeah, so at this point we're just using literal pictures of either yeah. people or like avatars, for example, if we right. want to not use human characteristics. Mm. Um, and yeah, we're we're just manipulating behaviors and seeing how people rate these behaviors. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it you know if we're doing this with like avatars that look like humans but not actual people, if we're doing this with males, females, um, we got I guess. 10 about 10 different targets doing these nonverbal displays um different ethnicities different obviously different genders um showed these images to thousands of people in north america so across us and canada and across the board we we see that this prestige display increases perceptions of prestige whereas this dominance display leads to perceptions of dominance i have a question for you on that is there the nonverbal communication that's going on, you, you said you have these different targets of different ethnicities and different genders and things like that. Is there any effect that gender or different demographics ethnicities have? Because I do know uh, gen- the general consensus is that a tall man is going to be like assumed to be the more dominant or the better leader than a shorter man. Is that true? Or did you see anything like that where it's like a a taller individual male would be perceived as a better or more dominant sure so because we're dealing with static photographs and we're just dealing with pictures of people it's hard to really capture height yeah yeah, yeah. uh so that's one problematic limitation yeah however in a study that i'll probably talk about in a bit we do um get to look at height and we do see that uh i believe height was related to these things Mm. um that said, one hypothesis that I tested with Audrey Day at UBC uh, that never really came to fruition is this idea. We were looking into this cold female bias. So we were thinking, okay, um, it's possible that if you perceive a female as competent, you're also going to perceive her as colder. Whereas if you perceive a male as competent, you might not perceive her as, or excuse me, you might not perceive him as colder. Um, so we do find evidence for this. So the idea that like powerful women, there's this stigma against them. Right. Um, we found evidence for this at first, which was super exciting. 2018, we replicated this. It didn't replicate so well. So that's, okay. um, we haven't really touched that in a bit. Mm. Um, Still an interesting inquiry at the same point, right? Because that's, it's definitely a conception that people have. Uh, yeah. And, you know, with the data we have at hand, it's not, we're not able to say it's definitely there or it's definitely not there. It's, it's something that's up for grabs. Absolutely. Um, but most importantly, Regardless of if you're looking at a male, a female, it doesn't matter if you're looking at a Central American target, if you're looking at a Caucasian target, uh, we see that this dominance display always leads to perceptions of dominance. Um, and this prestige display always, if not always, leads to perceptions of prestige. Good. I, I mean, that's 
that in itself is very interesting that everybody can kind of have these nonverbal communications regardless of what you look like. Sure, absolutely. Uh, everybody shares the same facial structure to a certain extent that they can kind of perceive or elicit this kind of uh, nonverbal behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and we, so we do find like tiny, tiny interactions, but none of them are particularly meaningful in my opinion. Yeah. We haven't really talked about like the implications of the, sure. the work that you're doing. Yeah, that's I mean, really important too, right? Yeah, so for sure. So I think one interesting way that this plays out in group dynamics. So one of the studies in the paper um, that I think is one of the most interesting studies in the paper, for my, in my opinion. Oh, just just so people know, uh, sometimes papers have multiple studies within them. Yes. Uh, usually, I think, especially, uh, I mean, even I barely knew this as an academic, that different papers that are published in, in journals, sometimes they, ha they run multiple studies. Absolutely. Uh, and some don't, some do. That's just... That's how the world works, especially within your work when you're talking, you've been talking a lot about like replication is really important. This is basically the main idea is that if you run a study, you want to say that this will happen again and again and again if you run the same study. Absolutely. And, you know, not only running the same study, but trying to attack the same question from different angles. So yeah. in one hand, <clears throat> you know, manipulating behaviors and showing people images while this is very important, it's also a step removed from the real world. It doesn't tell us how people interact in day-to-day -day situations. Um, it doesn't tell us the kinds of people who display these behaviors. Um, so in this paper, we, we do have several studies that attack this question of whether or not people use distinct nonverbal behaviors to communicate dominance and prestige. Um, and one of the studies that I, I think is going to be, in my opinion, one of the most interesting in the paper, um, we had groups of people come into the lab in groups between four and six people, and they were tasked to... Uh, rate a list, sorry, rank order a list of items as if they just survived a crash landing on the moon. So things like an oxygen tank, food, water. Uh, so they all did this independently <laughs> and they came up with their own lists and then they came together as a group to come up with a final group list. So we can look at how influential they are in the group based on how well their own individual list corresponds to this group list. So for example, if I say that water is the number one most important thing in my list and then Drake, you say it's the 10th most important thing and Kyle, you say it's the 17th most important thing. And then when we come together as a group and say, okay, it's the second most important thing. We can see, okay, so I said it was first and that's really close to what I said and not so close to what you guys said. So we can actually calculate how influential you are in the group. Right with this sort of task so I, I ranked it 17th because i ranked beer higher <laughs> so probably quick. a good choice <laughs> uh i wish i didn't say that anyway <laughs> uh, that's a quick cut yeah. <laughs> shout out to phillips brewer <laughs> okay so so the basically so within the study though how are the how is this negotiation occurring is it verbally or is it non-verbal are they having pictures of that they're just like showing like yeah, how, do you, so how do you get at that? It's a freestyle task. So yeah. we put people in the same room and we just tell them to kind of go at it. Right. And we're videotaping the entire thing. Okay. Um, so not only are we measuring how influential they are in the groups, but we're also at, at the end of the task. We're asking people how prestigious each target is, how, sorry, each participant is, how dominant each participant is, and how influential they are in the task. So in addition to all of these different ways we assess influence, we also have people watch these videotapes after the whole thing is said and done who don't know anything about any of these people and we say how influential are all of these people um and basically what we see is the behaviors that for example are associated with prestige so things like an upwards head tilt smiling and expansiveness um led to ratings of prestige in the group and these ratings also led to how influential they were perceived by all their group members in addition to how influential they're perceived by outside members so we see even in these sort of freestyle interactions these behaviors do predict how influential these people are perceived in the group and um 
how prestigious they are. Yeah, that's really cool. So the you have multiple ways of getting at prestige in that in that like that that uh, paradigm essentially is that you have people rating how prestigious they think the other individuals are you have video recordings of them and you're rating them from a like a qualitative coding like you're basically coding their posture uh and then you have the rank ordering change between the participants right so you're saying like oh that everybody changed them to this so that means that this person is probably more prestigious by another measurement yeah so we're able to look at how influential people are in the group um in a couple of different ways whether it's these outside observer effects or the team members actually rating how influential each of the people are um and yeah as you mentioned we code their nonverbal behavior with a, a group of coders um so the specific model that we include for example in this upcoming paper is we show that um, these prestige behaviors lead to perceptions of prestige and not dominance and these perceptions of prestige um are related to how influential these people are perceived in groups whether it's um, indicated by the group members themselves or outside observers who were completely unaffiliated with the group. Did you, within this study, uh, did you look at dominance and how it impacted uh, influence? So we did look at dominance and how it impacted influence. Uh, the results were less clear, to say the least. So yeah. one big issue is we get much less variety and aggressive behavior in the lab. Uh, so when we're dealing with <laughs> undergrads, I know this doesn't come as a huge surprise. Yeah. Uh, when we're dealing with undergrads, right, especially people who are participating for course credit, it's hard to get people to be motivated enough to actually try and intimidate other people in the group to influence their behavior. Um, so the results were definitely less clear for dominance. They were very clear for prestige. Uh, one of the things that we're starting to look at is different samples of participants and seeing if we can get these dominance behaviors to indirectly predict influence via these dominance ratings. Mm. So I have I have a couple of questions. One is, um, to what extent, you talked a little bit about, you know, we can't really elicit dominant behaviors in undergrads in the lab what kind of circumstance or situations would we see that in everyday life? Sure. Yeah. So lots of things come to mind, especially, so if you're, for example, in sports, if it's a contact sport, as you guys mentioned, uh, if you can come across as intimidating. If basketball team. We joke, Zach and I are on a, on a basketball team at UBC. We came off a very Drake can be very game. dominant <laughs> in games, to say the least. Just this uh, game on Saturday. Let's get a video recording, see if we can find the behaviors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I played sports with Drake before. <laughs> I know. Dominance in a bad way, but no, it's yeah. not always negative. But How many people case, did you run over? No, 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 no. Not, anyway. Well, it just turned into a bowling game. Where they, <laughs> I love the point. Yeah. But, uh, Sorry, so sports, sports might be a circumstance in which you'd see dominant behavior. Um, yeah, so... One example where you'd see these dominant behaviors, as we mentioned earlier, you definitely see it um, in sporting events. So people who are intimidating and aggressive, they're often very influential. Um, you also see it. Could I even argue, Zach, that you might even see it in crowds at sports games as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So one thing that I think is important to differentiate between dominance as uh, a, a leadership style oh, and aggressive okay. behavior, yeah, exactly, sure. right? So yeah. if you walk into someone, you push them, yeah. and they turn around and they aggress back towards you, what we call reactive aggression, mm. um, this is not using aggression as a tool to influence the behavior of others. Okay. So when I'm talking about dominance, I'm referring specifically to the use of aggression, intimidation, or coercion to influence people's behavior. Right. So as a social influence strategy. So it's not this reactionary, I'm mad, I'm going to hit you in the face sort of aggressiveness. Good. That's good to yeah. differentiate. Yeah, I, yeah, I, that's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you definitely see it. Uh, you see it in sports. You see it, as I mentioned before, um, 
like bouncers at bars, right? If they're trying to get you to turn around and walk away, that's a prime example of dominance. Um, But even in like smaller conflicts, right? So you see it actually across the animal kingdom. You see it in dome spiders. You see it in swamp sparrows. You see it in chimpanzees. Um, People engage in these displays that are signaling, I'm prepared to aggress towards you if you're going to fight with me. So Drake, if we're about to compete for this chocolate bar, instead of actually fighting for this chocolate bar, you know, you might be like, I'm bigger and stronger than you. So if you talk back, like it's not going to end well for you. And that's, that's the sort of dominance that we're tapping into. When yeah, we're it's not about the dominance. actual mm-hmm. action of aggressing on somebody by any means. It's just saying, I, I recommend you don't. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a perception <laughs> that I'm going to whoop your ass yeah, at you. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's <laughs> signaling the willingness to harm others, right? right? So, And even taking a step back from a more evolutionary perspective, mm. right? If, if you don't have to actually get into a fight with me, which I'm very thankful you don't have to, for this <laughs> chocolate bar, right? We're both going to be better off, right? If we have to fight for this chocolate bar, we're both going to be impacted negatively to some extent. Yep. So we're going to be way better off if you have a way of saying, I'm, I'm willing to do it if that's the route you want to go. Right. At which point it gives me the opportunity to defer to you, let you have your way, and then you can get this, in which is this chocolate bar, <laughs> but broadly speaking signifies some sort of access to resources. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So th- the other question I had... Um, is there one type of sort of behavior that's better? Is it better to be a dominant leader versus a prestigious leader? It's a great question. Um, so I think one misconception that people have is the idea that like dominance, aggression, bad, prestige, competence, good, and that is not at all the case. Um, so for example, you see that dominant individuals are willing to undercut group goals in order for themselves to be better or to maintain power in the hierarchy. So they'll actually do something that's in direct conflict to what the group needs in order to maintain their power. Um, and then, you know, so that kind of fits in the stereotype of dominance bad, but on the flip side, even with prestige, we see that prestigious leaders will also undercut group goals in order to remain well-liked. So both of these strategies, they're both effective at influencing people's behavior, um, and they both have costs associated with them. So there's not really a bad one, there's not a good one, they're just, they're different. Mm. I I really like the, I really like the point that, uh, with, with the chocolate bar, going back to the chocolate bar, uh, now I want a chocolate bar, um, but and I'll fight you if I need to. But uh, like the fact that you uh, the dominant behavior essentially is a net bo- like net positive for both individuals engaging in that in- interaction is interesting to me because I don't think I've ever really thought of it that way. Uh, seeing it from an evolutionary perspective, it makes a lot of sense that the bigger animal or the bigger yeah the bigger animal will generally say. We will lose resources. We will. We will. If we have to fight, we're both going to come out with some sort of negative. But one of us is going to get this, or we can assert this dominance. We can do this little dance, this nonverbal dance, and one of us will get it, and one of us won't get hurt, or both of us won't get hurt. Absolutely. So it makes a lot of sense. I think that's really interesting, and it's not as cut and dry, obviously, with human interactions. But I think there's a lot of things that are going on that are different and still aggressive, or dominance is really plays an important part in people's lives that we just may not realize because you don't it's not necessarily a fight it doesn't have to be a fight sure it could be dominance in could it be dom- i guess i guess i guess the question is that could it be dominance in whatever field you're in or uh, maybe your your relationships that you're in asserting dominance over an individual that may not be physical maybe more mental uh, does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. So <clears throat> there's this. A lot of people think that when you're talking about aggressive behavior in general, you're talking about this physical form of aggression, but it, it's not. So there's 
physical aggression, which is what I think we're kind of stereotypically talking about, but there's also verbal aggression, mm -hmm. right? So if I go around being like, you're an idiot, that's just completely incorrect. Um, it's those sorts of situations where you'd be like, wow, that guy's kind of a jerk. I don't want to deal with him. We're just going to let him have his way. Yep. Um, yep. And very similar to the way that physical aggression can be used to influence and intimidate others, verbal aggression can also be used to influence others. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. And, and the connection I think that was in my head was that uh, uh, you can be in an abusive relationship and have someone that's in a relation that's a very dominant figure and putting those pressures on you, it might not be physical, it could be verbal, or it could even be just a, a nonverbal like action that they constantly do that puts pressure on you. Uh, it's interesting. And, it, and it, it, to me, that, that reiterates like, this is impacting a lot of people's lives. This is, uh, this is great. <laughs> Yeah, no, so I think uh, one of the things that I don't talk about too often. Um, <laughs> Zach <laughs> cracked up for a second. <laughs> I was like, what did I say? <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, Frank's always going back to the relationship stuff. Yeah, yeah, my bad. I mean, one of the one of the reasons that I got interested in this research in the first place was because I had an ex-girlfriend. <laughs> um, there were some jealousy issues in the relationship, and um, I, there was a specific instance where I was going to go to this party, and she didn't want me to go to this party, and I'll never forget, she shot me this look, and her face was completely neutral. She was just staring at me, and she tilted her head down about 15 degrees. <laughs> um, and this is really what got me interested in nonverbal behavior research, like, no joke. Um, the origin story. I, I remember I saw this look, and I thought to myself, oh, man, if I go to this party, like, I will unleash the wrath. Yeah. Um, and I did not go to the party, but like taking a step back. Oh no! <laughs> taking a step back, like what you know, what happened here, right? Yeah. She shot me this look. I knew that if I went to this party, it was going to provoke her, and she was going to probably verbally attack me. Right, right. Um, and it influenced my behavior. And this is the sort of interaction that we're trying to talk about when we refer to dominance. We're talking about people using intimidation or like signaling a preparedness to get into an altercation to influence people's behavior yeah I, I love it i love that you you could share that yeah. with us because so, i mean everybody has a reason to engage in research absolutely and and i love that yours is so vivid uh yeah. it's like this is a clear cut oh i'm gonna i'm gonna try and figure out what the hell that interaction <laughs> was and here we are many years later <laughs> and you're doing a brilliant job yeah. at actually getting at the nitty-gritty yeah and you know younger zach uh he was spot on from what i'm seeing now to what i was perceiving right so we're seeing that Right, downwards head tilt, eye gaze directed, no smile. This exact permutation of behaviors does influence people's behavior by eliciting perceptions of dominance. Really cool, really cool. With that, with that in mind, obviously you picked up on that signal pretty strongly. Yes, right? as I'm, I'm sure most people do realize that something's going on. They they don't know the head tilts going on. They don't know what the behaviors are, but they're like, okay, I'm they're getting catching a vibe it. here. Right. Yeah. Sure. So so most people are capable of doing that. Do you have evidence that would support that? claim that most people are able to perceive this behavior yeah. as dominant yeah oh man i have lots and lots of studies so <laughs> even directly speaking to the effects of head tilt on perceptions of dominance uh, in a separate work that i didn't think i was going to talk about um <laughs> well, we, we, we have <laughs> what maybe like nine studies now showing not only that this effect um occurs very robustly also in a variety of different cultures including some very isolated cultures um but we're starting to uncover why that effect emerges. And we're seeing that um, head movements actually impact the way we perceive the face. So without getting into details, we see that when you tilt your head down, it actually causes the appearance of your eyebrows to lower and take on this V-shape. Um, and these appearance changes to the eyebrows are the exact reason 
um, based on a lot of evidence we have, um, that perceptions of dominance emerge. And that's because when you, there's this muscle in the forehead called the corrugator muscle, and it's this V-shaped muscle. So activation of the corrugator causes the eyebrows to lower and take on this V-shape. So we're seeing that head movement actually parallels the appearance cues associated with this corrugator activation. So for example, um, we see that a downwards head tilt increases perceptions of dominance, but if we take the eyebrows out of the photos, the effect goes away completely. Right. Or if we hold the eyebrows at a constant angle, so we tilt the head down, but we don't allow the eyebrows to change in appearance, effects again completely go away. Um, or if we bring 60 people into the lab, take a picture of their head, tilt their head down, take another picture of them, show this picture to uh, over 150 participants, we see that the angle of... Um, Poser's eyebrows mediates the relationship between head tilt and perceptions of dominance. So in a variety of different ways, you know, we not only know that head movements do create perceptions of dominance across a wide variety of targets and perceivers, but it actually happens because it changes the appearance of our face. If if I was a if I was gonna get into wrestling, I would name myself the corrugator and my <laughs> I would just come out and give the furrowed brow. Oh do it. <laughs> <laughs> one one quick <clears throat> comment on on uh, brilliantly explained. Uh Mediation is something that we don't usually say often. Uh, so just to explain the result a bit more, because mediation is essentially uh, a second, another variable that's dictating the results. Absolutely, right? yeah. yeah. So broadly speaking, it means that when we see someone tilt their head down, um, we see mathematically that it, it leads to changes in the angle of your eyebrow. And those changes in the angle of your eyebrow, independent of the fact that it's caused by head tilt, um, the V-shape of your uh, eyebrows cause perceptions of dominance to emerge right so it's it's the it's the it's the I eyebrow you can try you can try it again yeah it's it's like the main point is the eyebrow is the, that's yeah, causing the it, reason right? so it's it, cause it, more if like. you were to yeah. if you were to think about it if if you had a head it's, a head straight whoops i'm mm -hmm. gonna smack the hell out of my mic mm -hmm. here if you had if you had somebody's head straight but you simply angle their eyebrows that would cause the similar type of fact absolutely yeah so right. not not any research i've done but there yeah. is research yeah. showing that v-shaped eyebrows on neutral faces so if yeah. you take neutral faces and you just change the appearance of their eyebrows this has direct implications for how dominant they're perceived right and so when they're you know if you had the v-shaped eyebrow with a straight on face be perceived more dominantly but when you actually angle your your head down a little bit you're creating that v-shape yeah. through what you're doing exactly okay and by taking out the eyebrows entirely we see these effects go away that makes sense really? so yeah. zach you mentioned uh that even in the head tilt literature that it's not strictly uh in a north american culture or north american specific it's across cultures you see these effects where people will know when their girlfriend's pissed they're about to go to a party well, <laughs> or their boyfriend <laughs> yeah so not yet so actually okay. um Along with Jess Tracy and uh, a few other collaborators like Alex Hill, Jeremy Coster, and uh, we even have some children data with Anthea Pun and Andy Barron, um, we decided that obviously we're interested in how these behaviors influence other people. Uh, and taking a step back, as we were saying before, the kinds of interactions that these can play a role, whether or not we're going to fight over this candy bar um, or whether or not you're going to go into a different culture where you don't speak their language, but you have to figure out who to trust, who not to trust, who you should copy, who you can't copy. Right. Um, you know, these are not things that are only important in our culture. It's very important to be able to go somewhere else and figure out, okay, if this person's about to, like, attack me, I need to know that. In fact, from a stereotypical evolutionary scope, if you cannot figure out who's going to harm you, well, there are going to be some really devastating downstream consequences to that. Yeah. Um, so we had this idea that using nonverbal behavior to communicate both dominance and prestige has this sort of uh, universal universality to it. So... 
Jess and I really had this idea that the way that we communicate dominance and prestige here in Canada and America uh, is going to be the same way everywhere in the world. So it's a really hard claim to provide any sort of evidence for. Uh, Ambitious, <laughs> because not a lot yeah. of researchers try to do that. Yeah, yeah. I, it's it was uh, it was an undertaking, but <laughs> along with uh, with Alex Hill, we we took some stimuli to the Mosquito Coast in Nicaragua, um, a very very isolated culture. So just to give you an idea, these people spoke very idiosyncratic language. So to even ask them questions, we had to translate things from English to Spanish to their language, and then back to Spanish, and then back to English. Um, and uh, very isolated. So even when we look at the most isolated in this already isolated sample, so people who have zero years of formal education, people who can't read or write, we showed them images of famous people like Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, even like LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Cristiano Ronaldo. They don't recognize any of these people. Um, so even when we look at the most isolated people, we're seeing that they recognize uh, both dominance display, well, primarily dominance displays and also prestige displays um, at rates almost comparable to what we see here. Um, so it'd be hard to expect that people from these remote cultures um, would learn these things because they don't really interact with the Western world. So the idea that this is something that's kind of socially transmitted, it's hard to reconcile with the fact that we're seeing recognition so high in cultures so remote. Um, and then to even take it a step further, with Anthea Pun and Andy Barron, we start seeing evidence that children as young as three years old, in some cases even two years old, are recognizing uh, dominance prestige at very, very high rates, rates well above chance. Um, so the fact that people are recognizing it from such a young age and also in these really, really remote places suggests that it's probably not this thing that like we learn over time. It's probably something that's hardwired in us. So mm -hmm. we're happy that we're starting to get this converging evidence for this universality of these things, but it's been an ambitious project, to say the least. Being able to recognize somebody's dominance or prestige, that's a very, very useful skill to have. And so if we're all working off the same playbook, that could be really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there, there are lots of things that are definitely culturally bound. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if it's some, it's a lot of the explicit signals we see. So, for example, if you give someone the middle finger, <laughs> different cultures, it's probably not going to have the same meaning. Right. Um, so there's definitely, it's give and take. So there's lots of stuff that's very culturally defined. Um, and then there's also stuff that isn't culturally defined. So there's evidence that, for example, prototypical emotion expressions, such as things like anger, happiness, fear, sadness, surprise. Um, evidence that, for example, Paul Ekman got a while ago, like a very long time ago now, uh, in places like Papua New Guinea, showing that they also recognize emotion expressions at rates well above chance. So... Um, it's a bit of both. There's stuff that's culturally dependent, but also some more universal stuff for sure. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're, we're absolutely touching on it. And I think this is, this is the most exciting part about the implications of the work yeah. that you're doing. Uh, Love me the implications. Yeah. Well, it's there as we've kind of progressed through this and, and started throwing examples in that I didn't fully expect that we would. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I probably shouldn't have talked about the middle finger. <laughs> no, no, it's no, good. no, no. It's all good. But I mean, like there's huge implications within the work that you're doing. I mean, from my view, I see it as the interactions that you have on a day-to-day -day basis with people are, can be really like, there's huge implications on what non-verbally is going on uh, at a unconscious level or a subconscious level. So, what are the implications specifically that you guys have identified in the work that you guys have done and the findings that you guys have found? What are the big implications of these uh, dominance and prestige uh, nonverbal communications? Well, I think one important point, um, 
is definitely it allows us to explain things that we might not have been able to initially explain so well right so people are influencing the behavior of others how are they doing it who are these people uh right these are all important questions but also if it is an innate thing right it could have some serious implications for guiding development right so if children recognize it as young as two years old they might use these things to guide who they learn from versus who they avoid Mm. um and being able to do this at a very young age is critically important um but also for example take the recent presidential election right with donald trump and hillary clinton um so one of the studies in this paper again that we hope to get out sometime (laughs) soon um we coded the nonverbal behavior of donald trump and hillary clinton across all the presidential debates and we see that Donald Trump engaged in a lot of these dominance behaviors, whereas Hillary Clinton engaged in these prestige behaviors, which is right in line with, for example, Donald Trump uses a lot of attack ads. Um, he also uses a lot of analogies relating to boxing and fighting. So there's a lot of evidence converging, and they've even had people write Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton on dominance and prestige. So there's good evidence that Donald Trump is more of a dominant strategist, Hillary Clinton is more of a prestige strategist. Um, but when people ask, like, how does someone who just goes around attacking everybody still influence voters well the answer is because dominant leaders can be very successful in certain situations Mm -hmm. um so i think it it provides us insight into situations that we might not initially understand yeah understanding human behavior in a more core way Mm -hmm. yeah with that all said and i think you've just touched on it where do we go from here what is the next step in your work yeah so i think one thing that we didn't really get to talk about um does this work for everybody and i think the answer is no Right. So again, Drake, big muscly guy over here. If I uh, if we're competing for this chocolate bar and him being potentially stronger than me, I say potentially because, like, you know, (laughs) we'll see. We're not that different. Um, (laughs) Those are show muscles. (laughs) (laughs) No, but like if I am competing with someone who's like much physically stronger than I am and Mm -hmm. I shoot him this dominance look, I'm like, yo, if you want to go for that chocolate bar, okay, but I might attack you. Mm -hmm. Drake's not going to be very afraid of me. Right. So it's me signaling dominance, but me not being able to successfully elicit fear. So what are the consequences of that? Well, Drake might certainly rise to the occasion and it might actually lead to an altercation in this case. Um, or if a student, for example, tries to like elicit fear in a professor who has more access to resources and is in a higher spot of positional power and can inflict harm on the student in terms of giving them a bad grade, mm-hmm. well, I'm sure they will, right? So one of the yeah. directions we're looking to go now is understanding, okay, so if I try to communicate dominance, but I'm not in a position to communicate dominance, or I don't have the capacity to harm you, What's going to happen to me? Are there going to be costs associated with this? And there's some research in the world of costly signaling theory that would suggest, yes, if you can't afford the costs that are associated with doing these behaviors, it's not going to work for me for sure. Absolutely. So starting to ask the questions of who can use these behaviors and who can't, what Mm -hmm. situations they can be used in, which situations they cannot be used in. um, These are all future directions that we're starting to look at in the lab. You just explained why I got the marks I got in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Going around trying to bully your teachers? (laughs) I was not in a position to be dominant as a student. (laughs) For some ill-advised reasons, I thought I could control my teachers. Uh, They knew much better. Uh, One last question before we go into the break, Zach. We talked a lot about, uh, I mean, you talked about the implications and how these behaviors are super important in so many facets of life. But, and we joked earlier can you like teach yourself to to use these behaviors or change like i i constantly think of my posture not because i'm trying to be more dominant or or more prestigious just because my back is terrible (laughs) (laughs) but 
are there ways to effectively change the way that you see it consciously and say, okay, I want to act, I want to be more prestigious. I want to get more respect. I want to do these things. Sure. So I think the the heart of what you're trying to get at is can this be trained and can it be learned? Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a complicated question. The answer is yes. You can certainly tell somebody, okay, if you want to try and communicate this, you can use these behaviors. If you want to try and communicate this other thing, you can use these other behaviors. The question is, what will happen if you do this? So um, if, for example, you communicate that you're competent, knowledgeable, and you're an expert in some matters, and then someone asks you a trivia question and you fail to rise to the occasion, Mm. you're not going to be perceived as competent and knowledgeable. You're going to be perceived as arrogant. You're going to be perceived as conceited. You're going to be perceived as a person who thinks they know all of these things, but they don't. Um, So going back to costly signaling, right? the idea that if you try and communicate this thing, but you don't have the resources to back it up, there are going to be some costs associated with that. Mm-hmm. So if you try and appear more competent than you are, um, you're going to be perceived as arrogant. It could lead to things like ostracism. You're probably going to be liked a lot less. Yeah. So using these as tools is important. So sure, anyone can go out and do these things, but they're not going to have the same effects if you can't back it up. That's why one of the things that I think is interesting is whether or not dominant and prestigious individuals use these behaviors. And turning to, for example, the presidential debates, we see that they do. But also, it'd be maladaptive for people who are not dominant and not prestigious to use these behaviors. So I guess to like mm. wrap it up in a more central way, yes, you can do it. Um, Will it actually benefit you? Is probably not. Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, because if, you, if you're not dominant by nature or you're not prestigious by nature and you feel like you want to elicit that, you definitely, it's, it's less of a... It's kind of odd because it can't you can't call it walk the walk and talk the talk because it's nonverbal. <laughs> but <laughs> walk the walk. That, okay, you can walk the yeah. walk, right? So if you want to walk the walk, you have to posture to walk correctly <laughs> so that they can you can show them that you can walk. It's a tough take home <laughs> message. Very yeah. poor analogy here, <laughs> because there's no talking involved. But I, I I see the point. It's a really good point. Is that I mean yeah, ideally you could be you be dominant and prestigious and you want to elicit that, but if I if I have nothing to say. And I still want to be respected <laughs> and I want people to defer to me, but I don't have the answers. Is it really adaptive for me to be posturing that way? Yeah, definitely I, it, not. No, absolutely not. And so I think <laughs> not if you getting your ass kicked. Like, <laughs> yeah. 100%. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a, I think that's a really good, really good takeaway. Yeah. All right. With that, let's take a real quick break. We're going to refill our glasses. We're going to contemplate what we should talk about next. And then we'll be back and we'll talk about that stuff. (laughs) Stick with us. Bear with us. Uh, We're having a really good time. Zach, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Welcome to the Brain Break. This is a real off-the-cuff operation we got going on today. Um, But We're trying new things. We're trying new things. What we're thinking of doing is uh, we're going to go through really rapid-fire questions here for Zach. And he's just, without thought, it's just going to throw out an answer. Spoiler, I might put some thought into it. but like, uh, don't, don't think too hard. Yeah. <laughs> Look, the audio is going to be sped up by 200%. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll sound like the chipmunks. <laughs> uh, anyways, so uh, hopefully you enjoy this brain break. We'll see how it goes. Okay. All right. Uh, I'll start with a question. I have a fire, few baby. in the back of my mind. Rapid fire. Let's Rapid go. fire. You can then jump in whenever you want to ask another question. Absolutely. So if I get to 10, I'm going to be really happy with myself. That 10 would be amazing. Yeah. I've got one in my head. Let's hear him. All right. Zach, let's start with what is your favorite season? Favorite season? Season. That's a no-brainer. It's got to be summer, especially in Vancouver. Not a big fan of the rain, big fan of the sun. All right. That was the easiest question that I ever expected <laughs> to get on this podcast. All right. Let's follow up with mine season. then. Yeah. Do you believe in ghosts? 
Do I believe in ghosts? Uh, wow, that's a really tough one. This just got really hard. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say no. I haven't seen any evidence for ghosts, and um, until I do see that evidence, I'm going to say I do not believe in okay. ghosts. All right. I'm, uh, I'm, I'd like to formally apologize to all the ghost believers out there. But uh, That's fine. Yeah. And all the ghosts listening to this. That's show. true. Yeah, no. Yeah, sorry. I'll find out real soon if, uh, if they're yes. real. Yeah. <laughs> Zach's getting haunted. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> Uh, next question. Uh, favorite sports team? Oh, the Philadelphia Eagles, for sure. Congratulations on your Super Bowl win last season. Thank you. That means a lot to me. I, <laughs> I wasn't expecting it. It was definitely a come-from-behind uh, win, and um, I immediately spent way too much money on Super Bowl paraphernalia. So. <laughs> That's fine. Your hometown? From Rockville Center. So a uh, small town in uh, Long Island, right in New York, and uh, that's all I have to say about it. <laughs> favorite movie of all time? Uh, the Town. Big fan of the town. I really like heist movies. Just rewatched that the last month. That's a phenomenal movie. movie. Yeah. yeah. No, it, you know, there's something about like the strategic element to like pulling off heists that mm. I'm a big fan. Favorite artist, music artist. <sighs> so I'm going. All right. So this is a, this is a really complicated question. I've okay, always well. been. Uh, so Billy Joel. Okay. Especially if you check my Twitter, Billy Joel. <laughs> Um, We're going to link to your Twitter on that. Uh, yeah, okay. Yep. That's, uh, <laughs> that's your mistake. Uh, I'm also a huge fan of Dave Matthews. Oh. Always been a Dave Matthews fan. But I'm going through this, like, Whit Lowry Kid Quill phase where it's, like, this, what I like to call tasteful rap. So, um, tasteful rap. It's, uh, I, I kind of go between all of those guys. Okay. Now, uh, we just had Thanksgiving. American oh. Thanksgiving is upcoming. Turkey or the sides? Look, Kyle, all oh, I'm going to say goodness. here is that anyone who takes the turkey over the sides is just factually incorrect <laughs> and needs to reevaluate their life decisions. <laughs> I great. take stuffing alone yeah. <laughs> yeah. over yeah. turkey. <laughs> stuffing <laughs> or everything else, yeah. 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 No, I, I, I'm totally in agreement with you. Although turkey's damn good. Turkey, I mean, it's good if you, like, saturate it in a bunch of gravy, but at that point you're just having gravy with some turkey, so <laughs> I don't know. Mm. But I, I, I tend to go for the sides, especially sweet potato pie. Android Delicious. iPhone. iPhone. Yeah. <sighs> okay. <laughs> next, next question. <laughs> next. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Uh, favorite color? Favorite color. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm colorblind. Uh, <laughs> so I. this is going to sound ridiculous. I really like the color gray, which I know it's a shade, not a color, blah, blah, blah. Um, but if I had to pick a favorite color slash shade, it would definitely be gray. <laughs> You're wearing a gray shirt. It looks... Haha, evidence. <laughs> there you go. I'm a man of my word. <laughs> All right, Zach, last question. What are we drinking today? We are drinking uh, Phillips Electric Unicorn. So uh, Phillips is actually a Victoria brewery, I believe. And yep. uh, I never had, uh, I'm no surprise, I never had Electric Unicorn until I got to Vancouver, but I was introduced to it by Audrey Day. And it's changed my life ever since. <laughs> yeah, you're you're one of the most adamant guests about having this specific. Beer, which I was really <laughs> we happy love about. it. Yeah, it's yeah. Great. We're, it's a bit, I'm a big fan. Of I the went to two liquor well. stores today to try and find it. Wow, that means a lot to me. I appreciate oh, that. Thanks. We look after our guests. Yeah. yeah. All right. It's a great beer. Yeah. Uh, thanks. I think I like that. I like that. That's fun. That's uh, kind of fun. I'm gonna come with a little bit more firepower next time. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I know. I think if we actually have like some questions that we've spitballed ahead of time yeah. to just be like pew 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 yeah It'd be fun bang Keep bang that pew, 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 bang yeah. yeah that was good hey guys post editing drake back uh kyle made me keep that clip in so we hope you enjoyed the brain break we're still piloting a couple ideas for the brain break so if you have any suggestions or you thought that was that was fun or interesting uh let us know and so zach's gonna introduce us back in and we're gonna continue with the last half of the show 
Cool. So, hi, my name's Zach. This is my episode on distinct expressions of dominance and prestige, and I'm glad to come back with my hosts, Kyle and Drake. Great. Cool. Thank you, Zach. Yeah. Thanks for that rapid back. fire, that first subject <laughs> to the rapid fire brain break. Yeah, I, I liked it. Yeah, this is all right. I it yeah. I, it's nice to know a little bit more about you. Yeah. Uh, now everybody knows you're colorblind, so. Yeah. You know, it really, it, like, whenever I go to talks and I get to see graphs go up on the board, people love to use, like, 25 different shades of blue and I, I don't know what it is about blue but everyone loves it so i'm always sitting there and they're like the blue condition is this the light blue condition is this other one and i'm like okay all right so let's dive into a myth zach you you got some great ones for us yeah so uh have you guys ever heard of the show lie to me yes yes great I so have heard of it. the show lie to me is about this guy cal lightman who's actually the kind of tv personality that's supposed to be paul ekman um and he kind of trots around the globe solving crime and saving lives by picking up on people's lying behavior. And in this show, you would often see that he'd be like, ooh, slight activation of orbicularis oculi, this person's happy. Or, you know, like, <laughs> slight depressor lobby. Like, he would pinpoint specific behaviors and be like, because of that behavior, this person is lying. Mm. So it's not to say that there are no cues to deception because there are certainly things that can be indicative of deception, whether or not it's facial asymmetries or inconsistencies between what you're saying and what you're expressing. Um, there's definitely real, real and very important research on cues to deception or cues to emotion expression. But the idea that there's perfect mapping one-to-one -one of expression to internal state, uh, it's a myth. Hmm. So there are definitely relationships there's definitely evidence that, for example, people who do what's called a Duchenne smile, so kind of dual activation of both zygomatic major and orbicularis oculi, um, it's a more genuine expression of happiness. There's also... Can you say that in, like, English? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. A Duchenne smile is, like, a genuine... Is it, gen is it, like, technically a genuine smile? Or so a lot of people of like call it a genuine smile. Yeah. So um, the reason it's called a Duchenne smile is because this uh, French researcher i think he's french uh oh i could be wrong i'm That's sticking okay. with french um it's hard to fake so he actually had to activate the muscles in his face by like shocking his face to get himself to activate these muscles um but there are two muscles that are part of this genuine smile so there's this circular muscle around the eye called orbicularis oculi um and activation of it causes in many cases these crow's feet wrinkles mm. around the side of your eye uh, and when that's paired with zygomatic major which is what we'll loosely call the smiling muscle right now. Right. Um, when you see those things get activated together, it's typically pretty good evidence of a genuine smile. Mm. Um, so not only do people engage both these muscles when they're experiencing happiness, but you also see that perceiving these muscles in tandem, opposed to just the mouth part of the smile, so it's really this eye part also, um, not only yields perceptions of greater happiness, but we're also more likely to trust these people, think they're warm, um, and interestingly, there was some interesting research showing that people who get Botox to their upper face, right, it, it impacts the way that your face wrinkles. And because we use face wrinkles to interpret emotion and draw impressions of others, it actually has implications for how we perceive them. So people mm -hmm. who get Botox to the circular muscle around their eye, when they smile, even if they're trying to activate this muscle, they're not perceived as as happy or as warm. Right. Um, but anyway, going back to this idea <laughs> that, that there's perfect mapping one-to-one -one between facial activity and internal state is not true. Mm -hmm. It's definitely correlational. Um, and in a lot of cases can be true, but 
seeing a single muscle and saying that person is definitely experiencing this or that person is definitely lying or that person is definitely x uh it needs to be interpreted more probabilistically yeah naturally right like i think i'm trying to think of examples that I'm sure there's a movie. I remember a movie where there's like, oh, every time this person lies, they rub their ear or something like that. It's sure. like, that's not the case. Not <laughs> I mean, that easy. Some people may have like, you may be less likely to maintain eye contact or there may be other things that like that might be perceived as lying. Sure. But that doesn't guarantee that they're lying. right? Yeah, Drake. And it's funny you say that, right? So this idea that people who are lying, right, they're going to have shiftier eye contact. Um, <laughs> so that's actually... The way people talk about that in the sort of nonverbal world is it's such an obvious cue that when people are lying, they'll actually overcompensate by making more eye contact in a lot of cases. Oh, really? So because everyone's like, oh, I better not be yeah. appearing like I'm lying. Boom, I'm going to make beams. lots of – Yeah. So, um, <laughs> the relationship between eye contact and uh, lying is much more fragile than uh, – <laughs> people might think right because lie i think it's like it's known that liars liars know that that's it's what thought, liars do it's <laughs> thought that that's what liars do yeah, yeah. so um yeah eye contact it's it's one of those interesting cues for sure but uh so you can't solely base your conclusions on oh yeah this this muscle was as was activated so therefore they're happy or they they they're not trustworthy whatever whatever absolutely it's hard to see a single thing by a single person and say this person is definitely x y or z absolutely yeah no it's a really cool myth it's it's, it's a good point it's something yeah. that i think that uh, as we talked about it's like okay great now i know when someone's tilting, like tilting their chin up they're doing this on purpose like they're this is, they're trying to be dominant or they're trying to be like act prestigious it's not the case. Maybe it's just a flick situation where they're looking up, <laughs> slightly looked up, and then yeah. now they're like, "Oh wow, they're prestigious." Head movement can definitely be used as a, like an interpersonal signal, but also, you know, it's used to guide eyesight, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm trying to look up at the ceiling, if I tilt my head down and then look up, I can only still get to roughly eye contact level. You're not able to look at the ceiling. So if we walk around interpreting all head movements necessarily <laughs> as interpersonal signals, we're forgetting the fact that if you want to go tie your shoe, you have to tilt your head down, right? Yeah, you're not dominant anymore. Yeah, so, and, and interestingly... That's one, why I wear Velcro. Interesting. You know, there's, there's a, uh, there's a fashion case there that here. we might need to talk about after this for sure. Um, <laughs> we can just end the episode right yeah. there. Let's call it a night. That's great. <laughs> for those listening, Drake is not wearing shoes, so I can yeah. neither confirm or deny. Sorry, neither nor. Um, yeah, but so one of the things that we look at, for example, so we, we see that head tilt is an interpersonal signal or it's perceived as an interpersonal signal if eye gaze is directed at you. So it's unlikely someone would tilt their head down and look up at you um, unless it's an interpersonal signal. But when eye gaze is averted, for example, perceptions of dominance tend to go away because the way I see it, people know that if you're looking away and your head's moving, it might be because you're using your head movement to guide your vision. Mm, yeah, so. absolutely. And so what's the big reason that you think that this myth was perpe like perpetuated? Yeah, honestly, I think uh, it was kind of perpetuated because people want that to be the case, as do I, right? Like, how cool would it be if I could see, oh, this person did this very hyper-specific behavior and it means this very hyper-specific thing? Like, people love to attribute meaning to things, yeah. and a lot of times there's just reason, like, justified reason to do it, yeah. but in many cases there's not. And, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a com common issue in the scientific community of people reading a paper and then trying to take that effect and attribute it to every situation where that effect might be able to be applied um and it's quite possible that in many situations that effect can be applied but it's not in all situations right even yeah. when we're dealing with correlations that does not mean that this happens in this way for 100 percent of people absolutely absolutely um 
awesome that's a wicked that's a wicked myth i yep. it's a really good thing to be aware of so whenever you you see your uh, partner or a friend or a colleague you can call them out and say <laughs> i know you're lying to me Don't but then they'll say I just listened to a Brain Buzz episode, and you're lying. <laughs> you're wrong. You don't know you're, what you're, you're talking about. Actually, I don't know if you're lying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I was. Maybe I wasn't. I don't Behavior know. Behavior's too hyper-specific. Yeah. Yeah. Why have you been staring at me for the last two minutes? <laughs> <laughs> really broken eye contact in a while. Cool. Right. Uh, water, uh, a cool fact. Cool fact, yeah. Cool facts. Yeah, yeah. what do you got? That's an excellent question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What's a cool fact? Good question. Uh, cool facts. Um... So this actually all got started uh, largely by Charles Darwin. So Charles Darwin um, was one of the first people to really think about the way that people express emotion. Um, And a lot of his hypotheses were really not far off. And I I always think it's cool when someone who kind of pioneers the field, you can, I'd say Paul Ekman probably pioneered the field of facial expressions, but Charles Darwin definitely was one of the first people to talk about it also william james talked about it for a bit um but a lot of the hypotheses that charles darwin made um just in terms of how we express things like fear and happiness uh, and surprise it was really not far off from what we now consider to be truth and what we consider to be facts um so i think that's that's something that's very interesting um another thing that i think is i guess this isn't a cool fact at all um (laughs) But uh, people really focus on the face a lot. And, you know, I I had the opportunity to chat with Paul Ekman quite a bit at APS this year, and it was cool to hear his perspective on why the face is so important. And uh, he was saying to me that, you know, there are so many muscles in the face, and there's no real reason for why, you know? Even, like, the way our face is structured. I know there was a recent paper in Nature Human Behavior talking about how our brow ridge might have evolved to interpersonally signal things to others. Um, And... All this evidence, the fact that the face is structured the way it is, the fact that there are so many muscles in the face, really suggests that the face is a platform to communicate information. And I think that's totally valid and super interesting. Mm. Um, But there are a lot of missing questions there. So in the world of emotion, right, if someone's far away, it's going to be hard to see specific facial muscle activations. Um, And you might rely on other things like the body. Mm. Also, if someone's, for example, not facing you directly, you can still probably pick up on emotion information in some meaningful ways. So I think one of the directions that research on emotion is starting to go is it's starting to look at the body in addition to the face. Um, And there's actually evidence already showing that bodily expressions of emotion can override facial expressions of emotion. So if you show someone, for example, an anger expression in the body, and you show them a disgust expression in the face, and you ask them, what is that facial expression? Often they'll say anger, right? So we really, we do care about the body. Um, And that's not to say that the face isn't important or meaningful because there's no doubt in my mind the face communicates very specific emotional messages. Um, but I'm excited to see the direction that things are starting to go with the body. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a recent review paper that Jess and I were able to um, write for Emotion Review showing that there are all kinds of ways that the body is used to express emotion and also the way that the body is used to interpret emotion. Um, but one direction that I, I think the field as a whole is starting to really shift is they're starting to care about what the body does. Um and honestly, there's not as much out there as I'd like to see. Yeah. So I'm excited to see as the field progresses in that direction what happens. Yeah. We've had a fantastic episode. Zach, thank you, thank you, thank you again for coming on the show. We've had a really good time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. Yeah, we've, we've really enjoyed it. We've, we've had some episodes with some people remotely recently, and it's nice to be back in studio. It's nice to have that nonverbal yeah. 
interaction going on here <laughs> while, while we're as everyone talking. all the listeners only hear the verbal parts <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's fine <laughs> maybe we'll one day like live stream an episode i think our first video recording will have to be with zach at I think some so. point just so it's... we can do the, the you sure you want this face being being streamed live oh. i don't know hey, you've seen the photos of we us can have a st- <laughs> not great beauty of the internet or beauty of like editing we can have a stand-in for you and we just voice <laughs> oh that'd be great <laughs> yeah. yeah like some good looking dude just yeah. sit him down yeah, and we'll, we'll pop three really attractive dudes yeah. in, in our yeah. spots and people That's just... Zach. Yeah. <laughs> i shotgun uh ryan reynolds yeah <laughs> we can oh, only I play the part of kyle uh, <laughs> i still get the voice though he gets yeah, you know, yes, yeah, my voice. Of so course, of fun. course. Your smoky voice. <laughs> so, right. uh, Zach, is there anybody that uh, before we wrap up, we we have we we're gonna link your Twitter if that's okay with you. Sure. We're gonna link uh, connect with any information that people can get to contact you if they have any questions. Uh, is there anybody that you like to shout out? I know you you've given a lot of shout outs as we've gone through. There's a lot of people that you've worked with. Uh, so here's your chance. Yeah, Shout out so you uh, like, first and foremost, obviously, special thanks to Jess Tracy. Almost all the work that I do has been done with her. Um, also, Alex Hill, Jeremy Coster, Anthea Pun, Andy Barron. I know I've talked about a lot of their research. Um, but also all the primary stuff that I've talked about with distinct expressions of dominance and prestige. That's all been with Jess Tracy, Joey Chang, and Joe Henrik. Um, so also a very special thanks to them. And um, that's about it. Awesome. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you. With that, we'll call it a wrap on yet another episode of Brain Buzz. Thank you for listening along. Uh, We hope that you've enjoyed immensely. If you have, stop on by iTunes, Google Play. Leave us a review. Leave us a few likes. Smash that like button. Smash that like button. That's Drake's new favorite. (laughs) Smash that like button. Hey, baby. (laughs) Um, But seriously, please do. uh, Let us know what you've thought. If you've got something that is really just burning a hole in your brain and you want to get it, you want to tell us, Head over to brainbuzzpodcast.com. After medical. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Seek medical intervention Seek med- first. <laughs> Something's burning a hole in your brain. <laughs> yeah. Don't go to us first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go go to the hospital. But then when you're there, <laughs> Definitely waiting. don't go to Drake first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Kyle, maybe. Just not Drake. Just not Drake. <laughs> <laughs> While you're sitting in the waiting room, yeah. le- send us an email, brainbuzzpodcast.com. You can get in touch with us through the uh, comment section. While you're there, you can check out previous episodes. You can check out Zach's bio. We've got a photo up with him. We've got uh, links to his uh, uh, email address and Twitter handle. And as well, we've got information about Drake and I. So if you ever want to get in touch with us. For uh, any reason. For any reason, really. Just want to say thanks or no thanks. (laughs) (laughs) You're able to do that, too. Anyways, uh, until next time, I'm... I almost said I'm Drake. <laughs> I want to be Drake. Yeah. No, I don't. I'm okay being Kyle. <laughs> Until next time, I'm Kyle. I'm Drake. Thanks, Kyle, for. Si- <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Zach. Outtake, baby. Shit. All right. Thanks, Zach. So, who's this- Kyle? Yeah. Just so yeah, I'm God. clear, because I'm incredibly unclear. Let's do this again. <laughs> oh, my God. You're Kyle. Wait, you're Kyle. I'm Drake. That's Zach. <laughs> yeah. I'm Zach. You're right? Zach. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Zach. We had a great time. Yeah. Hey, guys. It's Post Editing Drake again. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We had a really fun time with Zach, and uh, we ended up talking a little bit about uh, Amy Cuddy and power posing. And if you haven't heard about Amy Cuddy and the power posing um, 
dialogue, I highly recommend going and checking out her TED, TED Talk. Uh, it's called Your Body Language May Shape Who You Are. Zach had some really interesting insights into uh, the controversy associated with this, this these findings, and he had uh, a fun time uh, and, and talking about it. So we wanted to include it, and uh, that's why there's eight more minutes left in the episode. So we pick up pretty much right in the conversation, and uh, we hope you like it, and we'll see you on the next one. I think it's a really good point, Zach. I think what you're getting at reminds me of this Amy Cuddy TED Talk about power posing and how there was a huge um, backlash of the fact that she said that, yeah, you can just do a power pose and you'll be more dominant. Things will change and your life will be a million times better. Yeah, so I'm actually thrilled that you talked about power posing. I think it is like the most interesting thing going on right now. And people have kind of stopped talking about it. So just to like recap what Amy Cuddy found real quick. Um, in her psych science paper, she shows that uh, she finds that um, maintaining the power pose for two minutes causes you to uh, increase your testosterone levels, decrease your cortisol levels, and it yields higher self-reported power. And then there's been a lot of controversy. And to say a lot of controversy, I feel like does not even begin to explain the controversy around power posing. Um, but there was a, a big replication by Rainhill where they, again, found that it does actually increase self-reported power, but it does not have these testosterone cortisol effects. Um then there was a P-curve by Simonson showing that a lot of the evidence for power posing is weak. This was after um, a rebuttal by, I believe it was Dana Carney and Amy Cuddy. Uh, interestingly, Dana Carney... <laughs> <laughs> Just go at it. Just yeah. go for Zach's it. Zach's heavily invested. This is, yeah. it, it's, it's beautiful because this is it's... very similar to the work that you do, and you are basically working against what the findings are i i, I love it you it's know i think open debate the big question among all this power posing controversy so many people say it's real so many people say it's fake i think one thing that we can say not with certainty but it, it seems like the testosterone cortisol effects are all very much so in qu question um but the effects of self-reported power do seem to replicate mm. um which is important but I, I think stepping back the question that is still so salient in my mind that nobody has answered is what is the power pose? It's not clear to me what <laughs> is the power pose. And the only thing that the power pose is, to my understanding, it's this idea that open, expansive, nonverbal behaviors lead to self-reported power. Um, and I know I touched on this a bit, but open and expansiveness is not this very clear-cut unitary constructs, right? We see that these grandiose space-taking forms of expansiveness are related to dominance and not prestige. We see these more subtle forms of expansiveness involving chest expansion and torso out are related to prestige and not dominance. So taking this single thing of expansiveness and saying expansiveness is power, mm. it's more nuanced than that. Yeah. Um, but most importantly, I think questions that I have gone through papers trying to find the answer is, does the power pose include a smile? Where, what position is your head in the power pose? And one thing that I think would be super interesting is whenever you see an effect that sometimes replicates, sometimes doesn't. Um, so on the one hand, it could be p-hacked. On the other hand... When you say p-hacked... Uh, excuse me. Yeah. So on the one hand, it, it could be from questionable research practices that yes. are used to uncover effects. 
uh, which Dana Carney actually released a whole letter about that for anyone interested in that. But I, I think another thing that could be going on here is there could be a potential moderator underlying this power pose effect. And if there's a potential moderator, it would be a very clear explanation for why different studies, especially run by different researchers who have, might have different conceptualizations about what the power pose is, might be uncovering different effects. Mm-hmm. Um, by moderator, again, you mean that essentially another variable that's that's dictating this exactly right? so yeah. going back to could be head tilt could be could be something that's going on within your line of work right. or someone else might think there's a different moderator so what's the power pose it's quite possible there is no single power pose it could be possible there is a dominance pose and there's a prestige pose and both of these we'd expect would um yield self-reported power because both of these have to do with the ability to influence others um and being at the top of a social hierarchy but the kinds of power they elicit might be very different. And this could also have implications for why we're seeing differences in testosterone and cortisol. So I know Pranj Mehta, and we're collaborating on a project now, but he has a lot of stuff on the dual hormone hypothesis showing that the interaction between testosterone and cortisol have different implications for both dominance and prestige. So when you muddle dominance and prestige together into this general power pose thing, the reason we might not be getting these clear effects is because we're failing to differentiate between these two constructs. Mm -hmm. The people that are responding to these power poses might be saying, oh, I might actually be thinking that, oh, I feel more prestigious, but they don't have the word for it. They're just muddling it into power. Yeah. And that's very problematic it's interesting but it it fails to pick up on the the, what i would perceive to be a very important nuanced relationship absolutely i'm glad we got to talk about because as you talked about it uh it was just buzzing in my head (laughs) yeah Uh, and it's funny now because it's it's almost like it's an outdated controversy but it's still very much like this is the one of the biggest controversies i think in in my young career psychology was the most vocally uh uh most talked about in the media absolutely contentious too absolutely and it's it's to the point where i think you know obviously i'm very ingrained in this research so I'm, I'm seeing all of it but there's stuff coming out um i think uh the journal comprehensive results in social psychology i believe that's the name of it um they have this very unique sort of way of going about um writing papers where you send them to my understanding it's you send them the outline of the paper um including the introduction, the hypotheses, everything's pre-registered. So you pretty much know everything about the paper except for the results. And then it's given like a in-principle acceptance, I think it's called. And then after you get the results, they say, okay, no matter what the results are, this is an interesting topic, so we're going to publish this study. Well, they had a whole special report on power posing where all pre-registered studies, no file drawer, right? You don't have to worry about any questionable research practices, no nothing. Um, file drawer is also a term that we use a lot in psychology. Uh, the file drawer effect is essentially, it's a huge problem in psychology because it means that if you don't find something that's significant, you just put it in the file drawer and you leave it. Yep. And no one, no one sees about it except for you. And and that's a huge problem. So that's yeah. exactly what Zach's bringing up. It's Absolutely. Yeah. So, and this journal did a whole special issue on it. Um, and they found that across a bunch of studies that they had in this paper, uh, they ran a meta-analysis on the effects of self-reported power, and it doesn't matter if you use regular, typical meta-analytic strategies. It doesn't matter if you use Bayesian meta-analysis. Um, they things, did find things we're not going to explain. <laughs> yeah, that's, just fancy. It's not even getting there. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, continue. yeah, but even even when they did that, they did find that uh, power posing did lead to an effective heightened self perceptions of power. Mm. So. There's something the controversy is real, but it's the controversy is there for a reason because it's not done in the way that it should have been done or the way that we're 
because we the, don't the, know enough the about causality it. of it is, yeah. is very problematic yeah. and i think that's a big problem just any anywhere when it comes to media uh, and latching on to causality right so saying that this is the reason why or this is how you can become more powerful is by power posing for two minutes in the morning is there a smile i don't know yeah like, i i like to think there probably isn't <laughs> yeah. but i don't know a lot of power for, like to me power is like yeah, i don't understand power anyway but yeah <laughs> Further reiterating your point. <laughs> Prestige dominance, I get it now. <laughs> Power is still a little bit muddy. Uh, yeah, so I'm glad that we got to bring that up. I think we could even throw that into the later half of it as well, possibly. Yeah, I think so. Uh, we'll see where it cuts out.